Section 27 of the $30,000 Bequest and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The $30,000 Bequest and Other Stories by Mark Twain. Section 27 Post-Mortem Poetry In Philadelphia they have a custom which it would be pleasant to see adopted throughout the land. It is that of appending to published death notices a little verse or two of comforting poetry. Anyone who is in the habit of reading the daily Philadelphia ledger must frequently be touched by these plaintive tributes to extinguished worth. In Philadelphia, the departure of a child is a circumstance which is not more surely followed by a burial than by the accustomed solacing poesy in the public ledger. In that city, death loses half its terror because the knowledge of its presence comes thus disguised in the sweet drapery of verse. For instance, in a late ledger I find the following. I change the surname. Died. Hawks. On the seventeenth instance, Clara the daughter of Ephraim and Laura Hawks, aged twenty-one months and two days. That merry shout no more I hear, no laughing child I see. No little arms are around my neck, no feet upon my knee. No kisses drop upon my cheek, these lips are sealed to me. Dear Lord, how could I give Clara up to any but to thee? A child thus mourned could not die wholly discontented. From the ledger of the same date I make the following extract, merely changing the surname as before. Beckett, on Sunday morning, 19th instant. John P., infant son of George and Julia Beckett, aged one year, six months, and fifteen days. That merry shout no more I hear, no laughing child I see. No little arms are round my neck, no feet upon my knee. No kisses drop upon my cheek, these lips are sealed to me. Dear Lord, how could I give Johnny up to any but to thee? The similarity of the emotions as produced in the mourners in these two instances is remarkably evidenced by the singular similarity of thought which they experienced, and the surprising coincidence of language used by them to give it expression. In the same journal of the same date I find the following, surname suppressed as before. Wagner, on the tenth instance, Ferguson G., the son of William L. and Martha Teresa Wagner, aged four weeks and one day. That merry shout no more I hear, no laughing child I see. No little arms are round my neck, no feet upon my knee. No kisses drop upon my cheek, these lips are sealed to me. Dear Lord, how could I give Ferguson up to any but to thee? It is strange what power the reiteration of an essential poetical thought has upon one's feelings. When we take up the ledger and read the poetry about little Clara, we feel an unaccountable depression of the spirits. When we drift further down the column and read the poetry about little Johnny, the depression in spirits acquires an added emphasis, and we experience tangible suffering. When we saunter along down the column further still and read the poetry about little Ferguson, the word torture but vaguely suggests the anguish that rends us. In the ledger, same copy referred to above, I find the following. I alter surname as usual. Welch. On the fifth instance, Mary C. Welch, wife of William B. Welch, and daughter of Catherine and George W. Markland, in the twenty-ninth year of her age. 
A mother dear, a mother kind, has gone and left us all behind. Cease to weep, for tears are vain. Mother dear is out of pain. Farewell, husband, children dear. Serve thy God with filial fear, and meet me in the land above, where all is peace and joy and love. What could be sweeter than that? No collection of salient facts, without reduction to tabular form, could be more succinctly stated than is done in the first stanza by the surviving relatives, and no more concise and comprehensive program of farewells, post-mortuary general orders, etc., could be framed in any form than is done in verse by deceased in the last stanza. These things insensibly make us wiser and tenderer and better. Another extract. Ball. On the morning of the fifteenth instance. Mary E., daughter of John and Sarah F. Ball. Tis sweet to rest in lively hope that when my change shall come, angels will hover round my bed to waft my spirit home. The following is apparently the customary form for heads of families. Burns, on the twentieth instant, Michael Burns, aged forty years. Dearest father, thou hast left us, here thy loss we deeply feel. But tis God that has bereft us, he can all our sorrows heal. Funeral at two o'clock sharp. There is something very simple and pleasant about the following, which in Philadelphia seems to be the usual form for consumptives of long standing. It deplores four distinct cases in the single copy of the ledger which lies on the memoranda editorial table. Bromley, on the twenty-ninth instant, of consumption, Philip Bromley, in the fiftieth year of his age. Affliction sore long time he bore, physicians were in vain, till God at last did hear him mourn and eased him of his pain. That friend whom death from us has torn, we did not think so soon to part. And anxious care now sinks the thorn still deeper in our bleeding heart. This beautiful creation loses nothing by repetition. On the contrary, the oftener one sees it in the ledger, the more grand and awe-inspiring it seems. With one more extract I will close. Doble, on the fourth instance, Samuel Purville Worthington Doble, aged four days. Our little Sammy's gone, his tiny spirits fled. Our little boy we loved so dear lies sleeping with the dead. A tear within a father's eye, a mother's aching heart, can only tell the agony how hard it is to part. Could anything be more plaintive than that without requiring further concessions of grammar? Could anything be likely to do more toward reconciling deceased to circumstances and making him willing to go? Perhaps not. The power of song can hardly be estimated. There is an element about some poetry which is able to make even physical suffering and death cheerful things to contemplate and consummations to be desired. This element is present in the mortuary poetry of Philadelphia degree of development. The custom I have been treating of is one that should be adopted in all the cities of the land. It is said that once a man of small consequence died, and the Rev. T. K. Beecher was asked to preach the funeral sermon a man who abhors the lauding of people, either dead or alive, except in dignified and simple language, and then only for merits which they actually possessed or possess, not merits which they merely ought to have possessed. The friends of the deceased got up a stately funeral. They must have had misgivings that the corpse might not be praised strongly enough, for they prepared some manuscript headings and notes in which nothing was left unsaid on that subject that a fervid imagination and an unabridged dictionary could compile and these they handed to the minister as he entered the pulpit. 
They were merely intended as suggestions, and so the friends were filled with consternation when the minister stood in the pulpit and proceeded to read off the curious odds and ends in ghastly detail and in a loud voice. And their consternation solidified to petrification when he paused at the end, contemplated the multitude reflectively, and then said impressively, The man would be a fool who tried to add anything to that. Let us pray. And with the same strict adhesion to truth, it can be said that the man would be a fool who tried to add anything to the following transcendent obituary poem. There is something so innocent, so guileless, so complacent, so unearthly serene and self-satisfied about this peerless hogwash, that the man must be made of stone who can read it without a dulcet ecstasy creeping along his backbone and quivering in his marrow. There is no need to say that this poem is genuine and in earnest, for its proofs are written all over its face. An ingenious scribbler might imitate it after a fashion, but Shakespeare himself could not counterfeit it. It is noticeable that the country editor who published it did not know that it was a treasure, and the most perfect thing of its kind that the storehouses and museums of literature could show. He did not dare to say no to the dread poet, for such a poet must have been something of an apparition, but he just shoveled it into his paper anywhere that came handy, and felt ashamed, and put that disgusted published by request over it and hoped that his subscribers would overlook it, or not feel an impulse to read it. Lines, composed on the death of Samuel and Catherine Belknap's children, by M. A. Glaze. Friends and neighbors all draw near and listen to what I have to say, and never leave your children, dear, when they are small, and go away. But always think of that sad fate that happened in year of sixty-three. Four children with a house did burn think of their awful agony. Their mother, she had gone away and left them there alone to stay. The house took fire and down did burn before their mother did return. Their piteous cry the neighbors heard, and then the cry of fire was given. But, ah, before they could them reach, their little spirits had flown to heaven. Their father, he, to war had gone, and on the battlefield was slain. But little did he think when he went away, but what on earth they would meet again. The neighbors often told his wife not to leave his children there unless she got someone to stay and of the little ones take care. The oldest he was years not six, and the youngest only eleven months old, but often she had left them there alone, as by the neighbors I have been told. How can she bear to see the place where she so oft has left them there, without a single one to look to them or of the little ones to take good care? Oh, can she look upon the spot where under their little burnt bones lay? But what she thinks she hears them say, "'Twas God had pity and took us on high. And there may she kneel down and pray, And ask God her to forgive, And she may lead a different life While she on earth remains to live. Her husband and her children too, God has took from pain and woe. May she reform and mend her ways, That she may also to them go. And when it is God's holy will, Oh, may she be prepared to meet her God And friends in peace, and leave this world of care. Written in 1870 End of Postmortem Poetry <laughs>